Well, hey, everybody. Here we are on uh, Easter Sunday, uh, presumably nearing the peak of this pandemic. Uh, perhaps we don't know. The Lord knows. Um, one thing that a pandemic like this can be good for is just to remind us of our own mortality. You know, throughout uh, the scriptures and especially in the wisdom books, we read uh, that there is wisdom and knowing that, that life is short, the brevity of life, uh, and that we do have an, an inevitable day that will come where we will be, uh, we, we, were, we will die. And so there's wisdom in knowing that. And, you know, this virus has changed the entire world. Schools are, are shut down, businesses are closed, churches are not gathering together, uh, even on, on Easter, and it's, it's bizarre. And there's just nothing really to compare it to in our lifetime. Uh, if we were to compare it to anything, it would be b- before we were alive in 1918 with the Spanish flu. And so it's just a bizarre time. And, and, it's, uh, and it's not just a, a local thing that's going around, it's, it's worldwide. And so there's just a sense where the, the entire world has shut down and it seems bizarre, but there's also this kind of odd part to where uh, for, for, for many of us, we, we might not be experiencing the, the threat of the coronavirus as much. It, it's a thing that's, that's in other places. It doesn't feel as much local. Um, many of us don't even know anyone who, who has this virus. So it's, a, it's an odd feeling, but, but we still shut everything down. And why do we shut everything down? Because we know, I'd imagine very few people that actually have the virus, some certainly know, know uh, more than, than others, but, but we're shutting everything down because we don't want anybody to get this. But even when people get it, there's an 80% recovery rate from what I understand. And so it seems, it seems crazy that we shut everything down when uh, relatively few people seem to, to get this that, that we know that are around us and that the, the survival rate's around 80%. And so some might think it's odd that we go to these extremes and shutting everything down. I think it's wise that we shut everything down, just for the record. But the reason that we're responding this way isn't because this virus will make people sick and it'll eat up a few sick days or that it'll cause problems or whatever. The reason that we're reacting so strongly, and I think wisely, is because of the threat of death. The threat of death through this virus has, in a, in, a, in a really unique way, united the whole world, you know, in a way that we never have been as a, as a city, as a state, country, and as a world. We, we are all together on this one. We, we all want to, to see the coronavirus defeated, and we all want life to go back to normal. And so there's something about the threat of death that concentrates the mind, that makes us serious and sober, that, that, that make us do things like we're doing in order to put this virus away. And, and the reason we're so sober-minded with this, the reason we're so serious and going to such extremes, I would say is because of the fear of death. It's real. I don't want to die. You don't want to die. And we don't want other people to die. And when something threatens that, we get really serious because death, is really serious, and we have a built-in fear of it that makes us respond the way that we respond in this situation and other situations that might um, provoke the the fear of death. Uh, William Shakespeare, uh, his Sonnet 64 captures this idea really well. Um, And look, 
I don't want to be pretentious. I wasn't sitting around reading William Shakespeare this week. I, I saw it on Twitter somewhere. And as I read it, I thought it was beautiful and I wanted to share it because I think it ties in to a lot of what we are going through with this idea of, of, of death or the fear of death looming uh, through this virus. Um, and, and really what it's about, it's about how time will, will ultimately be the destroyer. Will, will time will ultimately take all things, death, uh, will, 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 time will take us away. And here's what he says. He says, when I have seen by time's failed hand to face the rich, proud cost of outworn, buried aged, when sometime lofty towers I see down raised and brass eternal slave to mortal rage, when I've seen the hungry ocean gain advantage of the kingdom of the shore and the firm soul win of the watery main, increasing store with loss and loss with store, when I've seen such interchange of state, or state itself confounded to decay, ruin hath taught me thus to ruminate, that time will come and take my love away. This thought is as a death which cannot choose, but to have that which it fears to lose. Ruin hath taught me thus to ruminate. The inevitability of death, when we choose not to ignore it, will teach us to think a little deeper. When I was in college, I, I went through this um, somewhat abnormal phase of really being afraid of, of death. Uh, and I, I should add, I was, I was perfectly healthy. Uh, the, the one trigger I can think that might have brought this to be about a year before uh, I had lost two close friends uh, had, had died. And so death was um, confronting me, confronting my mind. And, and here's how my abnormal fear played out. I wasn't afraid of driving or getting in a wreck or, or flying in planes. In the normal stuff of, of, of my daily routine, I, I didn't think about it much. But where it got me, it got me when I'd go to bed at night and I'd just be alone with my thoughts in the silence. And I remember thinking, and, and I wasn't afraid of death or dying as much as I, I, I was afraid of, of God's judgment. I, I wondered where I, I stood before God. You know, I'd grown up in church and, and knew that Jesus died for sins. Uh, I, there, there was a disconnect. I, my, my life wasn't really aligned with what I said my faith was. And so I wondered if the, the disconnect between the way I live my life and what I believed, I wondered if that mattered for my soul. If I was saved or not, I think I had good reason to have some concern about the authenticity of my faith. But either way, I, I, I would struggle at night. I would, I would lay in bed, and I would think I might die in my sleep. I, it sounds crazy, but, but many nights I wondered if I would die in my sleep. And the scary thought I had in my mind is, what if I, what, what if I wake up in, in hell? Uh, I, I certainly believed in heaven and hell, and, and I was not certain where I stood before God, if I was actually right with God. And I know many others have had similar types of, of fears or, or thoughts. It might not be the same as mine, but different, different ways of, of thinking the same kind of thought. But the, the fear of death, I would say, is something that is uh, common in, in all of us. No one wants to die. And the, and the level of fear we have can be different. For some of us, we might just choose to ignore it. And for some, time, for some of us, when we think about it, it might overwhelm us. And for many of us, we even go the next step of wondering about God's judgment and where we stand before a holy God. And so here's what I want to do on this Easter morning. I think Easter speaks to the fear of death. And like that line in uh, Amazing Grace, uh, it was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. I, I think there's grace on Easter, grace that we learn from the resurrection that I think can relieve our fear 
of death. And so that's what I want to do today, is I want to consider the gospel in the resurrection in a way that might relieve our fear of death. So uh, here's what I want to do. I want to study, if you have your Bibles, turn them open to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 5 through 18. And in this passage, I want to highlight three things. Uh, I want to talk about God's plan. I want to talk about the thief. I want to talk about the champion. So God's plan, the thief, and the champion. These are the three points I have. Uh, and when I say champion, uh, I, I don't mean it like a sports champion, like, like somebody who you know wins a football championship or basketball or something like that. I don't mean it that way. I mean it like um, Martin Luther King was a champion for civil rights. It's a, a champion in the sense of one who fights for another. So that's what I'd like to talk about. So first, the plan. So let's read Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5 through 8. Hebrews 2, 5 through 8. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, quote, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So, so what the author of Hebrews is doing here is he's recalling how God created the world. Genesis 1, he creates the world and everything in it, and then he hands it over to man. He tells him to subdue the earth and have dominion over everything in it. So God literally makes the world, and he gives it to man. He gives it to, to Adam and Eve, and presumably his progeny after that, right? And so the whole world, and to use the, the word of the, the, the author of Hebrews here, the whole world is subjected to man, to Adam and Eve. And, and that quote we see in verse 6 through 8, you can tell in your Bibles, it's probably indented, means it's a quote. That verse 6 through 8 is a quote from Psalm 8. Uh, and in Psalm 8, you can notice that it begins and ends with the same line. The first verse and the last verse is the same in Psalm 8. And it says this, it says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So that's the beginning and end. And in the middle, we see what we see in verse 6 through 8 in Hebrews 2. We see this idea that, that God gave, uh, he subjected the world to man. So when God's majesty and all the earth is being extolled at the beginning and end of Psalm 8, the context of his majesty is man having dominion over all the earth. That's how God's glory, his majesty is made known, is in God's, God's creation, man having dominion over all the earth. So in a sense, we see the majesty of God in the dominion of man on the earth. When, when, when man created um, um, uh, air travel, planes, when, when we created uh, an, an iPhone, right now we're recording this sermon on a Friday. You'll get it on a, on a Sunday morning. Somehow things are going into space. Images are caught and stored and sent to every home. Uh, all these things are happening, and I don't get how they work, but, but man has figured out over all these years how to take the raw materials of the earth and do a thing to where we can have a, a me right here, right now, captured in a way that can come to your living room or, or your computer or your phone or wherever you are to watch it. And, and man taking dominion of the raw materials of earth, that way to do such a thing 
shows the majesty of our God, who is a creator, and we are made in the image of creator, and we are creating things. When we create music or anything lovely or beautiful or whatever, it is pointing to the majesty of God, whose image we're made in as a creator. So God's plan was for man to subdue the earth and have dominion over it. That was God's plan. And nowhere in that plan do we see, and then after 80 years, they die and they're gone. Death was not in the the design in the beginning. Man was not created to die. So how does death enter in to all this, to God's plan? Well, when man turned away from God in the garden, he gave them over to themselves, as we often see in other places. When man turns away from God, he says, sure, I'll give you over to what you want to do and let them leave. And so now we live in a fallen, cursed world where everyone is staring down this awful thing called death. None of us escape. But, but Adam and Eve didn't just wake up one day and say, you know what, I don't like it here anymore. Let's try to figure out another plan. That's not what happened. And you know, you know the story, but a thief entered into the story to take life away. They had some help. So my second point, the thief. In, in John 10.10, Jesus talks about the thief referring to Satan, who comes to only steal, kill, and destroy. And the thief entered the garden. He killed, he stole, and he destroyed. And he showed himself as the one who has the power of death. Notice in Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, how Satan is described as the one who has the power of death. It says the power of death, that is the devil. So the thief, the devil, turns the tables on man in the garden. He took man from being in a place of having the world subjected to him. So God created the world, and then he had man, Adam and Eve, and and he gave them the world. So the world was subjected to Adam and Eve. And then what Satan did was he took man, Adam and Eve, and he turned the tables on them to where now they are subjected to the lifelong fear or the lifelong slavery of the fear of death. That is what Satan did. That's what the devil, the thief, did. He took man in the original state of having the whole world given to him and being subjected to them to now man is subjected to lifelong slavery through the fear of death. And look, do you hate death? You should. It's awful. It was not in the design in the beginning. And and there's a place to rightly direct that hatred, right? And here's a hint. It's not the one who created the world and gave it to us. It's the thief who came in to steal and to kill and destroy. He is the one who put us into lifelong slavery of the fear of death. So hate the thief, not the giver of all good things. Our creator was unbelievably gracious to create a world and then give it to man. And he was just and right to to, to give us over to ourselves when we turned away. We turned away with Adam and Eve the same way they did. We've turned away from God. And he was just and right to let us go away. And he can't just let us come back in and say, no big deal, we'll just kind of forget about it. No, no, that would would not be just, and that would not be right. But but he was, was not content to leave us out either. And so he became like us, and he did whatever it took and took all the abuse this world had to offer that he might win back a people to come back into his kingdom. And he did whatever it took to win back his people. A man fought for a people. That's our champion, which leads me to our 
Third point. So like I said earlier, when I say champion, I don't mean like a sports champion. I mean like Martin Luther King fighting for civil rights. He was a champion of civil rights. So let's look at our champion who fought and suffered for us, for our sake, the same way that Martin Luther King would uh, fought and suffered for civil rights. Our champion fights and suffers for us. So let's look at uh, Hebrews chapter 2 again, and we're going to look at verse 9 through verse 17. So Hebrews 2, 9 to 17. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. I, I want to point something out. That first part of verse 9, but we see him. Now flip back to verse 8. The last sentence in verse 8 says, At present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So there's we, we don't yet see something, but there is something we do see, namely Jesus, right? So we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. Why? Because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So what did our champion do for us? Let's review this. In verse 9, we see that he became lower than the angels for us. He suffered and died and tasted death for us. In verse 12, we see that Jesus calls us brothers. Do you ever think of Jesus in that way? As your brother who's in it with you? Verse 14 and 15, we see that he became like us so that he might destroy the devil the one who has the power of death. Verse 17, we see that he is our merciful and faithful high priest. Here's what a priest does. A priest goes to God about man and man about God. He is our merciful and faithful high priest. And he made propitiation for our sins. Propitiation basically means that God, that, that Jesus bore God's wrath for us. And therefore, instead of being enemies of God, we are now his favored children adopted through the work of our brother Jesus. He's our champion. And look, that's why it's crazy. When, when people think of in terms of their salvation, like maybe, maybe some of you might be like me and you wonder about your salvation and you wonder if how it works or if you've been good enough or whatever. Here's where our salvation lies, in our faithful brother who did all that was necessary that we might be reconciled to God. We are saved by the work of Christ alone. Our, our sins are transferred to him at the cross, and his righteousness is transferred to us when we believe by faith and repent from our sins, repent from following our own heart, and instead follow Jesus. When we trust in the saving work of Christ, that's how we're made right with God. 
And, and in this act of Jesus taking God's punishment for us, he, he did somewhat of a jujitsu move on Satan. Now, what I understand jujitsu to be, uh, at least one, one element of it, is when you use your opponent's momentum against them. So, so let's say somebody, somebody takes a swing at me, and they, they take a swing, and I, and I grab their arm, and I, and I throw them down, and I use their momentum to, to throw them down. And so what was happening here is that Jesus used Satan's work, his momentum, against Satan, the one who had power of death. So, so what we read in the Gospels is that Satan wanted to kill Jesus. We read that he entered into Judas to betray Jesus. So it's clearly Satan's will that he wants Jesus to die. And the cross was Satan taking a swing at Jesus. And for a while, Satan might have thought that he was, he was somewhat successful. I mean, it, it was working. He entered into Judas. Judas betrayed him. He took him before the council. It was all coming together. And it looks like Jesus is going to die on the cross. And then he did. He actually died on the cross. But little did Satan know, at least at that time, that in that, in the death of Jesus, Jesus was destroying both the devil and death. Jesus used Satan's plan and strategy against him. And he continues to do that today. Just a little side note, in, in Ephesians 6, we read about the spiritual forces of darkness that are at work against us. So if, if you don't believe that there's spiritual forces of darkness working against you, you don't believe the Bible. Ephesians 6 is clear as day. That's, that happens. But the good news of that, for those of us who are God's children, God's family, we know that God can use that for good. And he uses that against Satan, even his own schemes. But this is how God often works, where, where these terrible things are happening, but God is using it and turning it for good. On uh, April 4th, 1968, Martin Luther King was assassinated. Somebody wanted to, to silence him, enough of this man saying these things. And what happened, rather than Martin Luther King being silenced, he gained more power than he ever had. And a week to the day after he was assassinated, President Lyndon Johnson signed into law the Civil Rights Act. And so just when you think uh, uh, someone's defeated or a movement's defeated, when that happens, it's like a, almost like a jiu-jitsu move where you use the, the evil one's power against them for good. The, the, the death of Christ as an apparent defeat that, that results in a great victory. Uh, some have, have compared it to a, a, a fish that takes the bait. So for example, a, a fish sees a worm and it goes and it devours the worm. But as it devours the, the, the worm, the, the hook is set. And rather than the fish being something that's devouring the worm, the fish is devoured by devouring that, that worm. And so in a, in a similar way, Christ was devoured on the cross. And, and, and it's like Satan was the fish. And he was thinking, we got him. We got him. And he probably thought as he was devoured on the cross that, that he just pulled off something amazing. The hook was set. The hook was set. And we know the hook was set because on Sunday morning, he arose. And that's how we know it all worked. And look, here's the thing. Without the resurrection... The devil and death are not defeated. Jesus just died and the devil won. The resurrection is our receipt that it's all true, that all that Jesus came to do and accomplish, it worked, that he really did defeat the devil and death. And everything hinges on this. If the resurrection is not true, I'll be honest, 
I don't know if I can go along with the New Testament anymore. If the resurrection didn't happen, I don't know if I can do it anymore. But it did. It did. And look, lately, for the last year or so, it, it seemed like it's almost become popular uh, to hear of people's deconversion stories. Um, and they talk about how they maybe grew up in the church and, and turned away from the faith. Uh, and, and some are more interesting to listen to than others. Some are more thoughtful and seem more genuine th- than others. But here's what I've found consistently. that w- When they deal with the resurrection, if they deal with the resurrection, it seems incredibly weak to me. And look, I think God was gracious to us in giving this this sign that we can hold to this really happen. I mean, ultimately, you got to figure out what happened to the body of Jesus. And if he doesn't, didn't resurrect, you have to come up with some, some pretty crazy ideas. Some people will say, well, I think the resurrection is crazy. Well, yeah, it is. But you have to come up with something. You have to deal and wrestle with the resurrection, because if that's true, it's all true. It is. And look, perhaps some of you are, are wondering this. Have you wondered, maybe, is Christianity really true? Is this all really re- legitimate? Or is this just, I, I grew up in the South, I grew up in a Christian home, and I just kind of adopted the, the faith of my, of my parents, or my family, my culture. And I can understand that. And you, and you might think, you know, I, I know some non-Christians and some Christians. I think I like the non-Christians better. They seem more fun, less judgmental. The Christians I know seem uptight, and I don't like being around them. You know, you might have struggled with the problem of evil. Like, how can, how can a, a good God exist that's supposed to be in control when all this terrible stuff happens in the world? Maybe you have a hard time believing the miracles that you read about in the Bible. But, but here's what you have to do. If you're going to turn away from the faith, you got to deal with the resurrection. What happened to the body? You have to deal with that. And I would say if you don't deal with that, you're being insincere in investigating Christianity. Because if that's true, and it is, then it's all true. Tim Keller said this. He said, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. If the resurrection is not true, then I don't know what to tell you. But if it is true, and it is, then you have been purchased by the Son of God, by the blood of Jesus, not with gold or money or anything, but by the person of Christ busting into this world, taking the abuse and purchasing all who would believe and come to him with his blood. And listen to what Jesus said about death in John 11 verse 25 and 26. Again, John 11, verse 25 and 26, Jesus said this. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So what Jesus is saying is that on our side, death is, death is an illusion. After you die, and you're on the other side of death when you're with Christ, you will look back at your earthly death as an illusion. Because what we see here is that we don't really die, but we continue to live. And that death is more of just a a passageway into the presence of Christ. For Christian, death is just the door to everlasting life with Jesus. 
John Calvin said this about death. Let us consider this settled, that no one has made progress in the school of Christ who does not joyfully await the day of death and final resurrection. Look, the, the fear of death for Christians, for those who have put their faith in Christ and, and repented from their sins and turned to follow Jesus, for, for, for us, the fear of death is a part of your old nature. You have a new nature through the Holy Spirit that does not fear death, but that actually looks forward to it joyfully because it's to be with Christ. And look, I know we have things in this life to do. We have family, we have work to do. And, and this is the tension that Paul brings up in Philippians 1. If you remember in Philippians 1, Paul is wrestling with attention. You know, I'm kind of torn between the two. I have ministry here. I have faithful work to be done here, but it's better to depart and be with Christ. It's better to die and to be with Jesus than to be here. But it's better for, for your sake, for the Philippians, for those he was, he was sharing the gospel with, that I remain. And so the motivation to remain in this life, to not die, isn't because we're afraid of death. It's because we have kingdom work to do. We have things to do for Christ, for the kingdom. He's given us assignments in our work, our family, and in whatever ways he might have called us to represent him on this earth, we have work to do. And so we do that faithfully, but knowing it's far better to be with Christ. That's why he said his famous line, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Time will take you away. It's taking everyone away. You won't be an exception. People will grieve the loss of you. But because of the gospel, because of propitiation, because of the resurrection, because of our champion and the receipt he gave us through the resurrection, in our final moments, or when we have these thoughts of death uh, begin to, 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 to put fear in our hearts and minds, we don't need to be thinking fearful thoughts when we think about death. You know what we need to think when we think about death? Gain. That's what we need to think about. It is far better to depart and be with Christ. And we have the receipt of the resurrection. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are, we are staring down death. Whether there's a pandemic or not, we live in a fallen world and we we can live under the threat of death. But because of our hope in the gospel, in the work of Jesus, your son, that we need not fear death, but we can hope in the work of Christ that ultimately when we taste death, that it will not be a fearful thing, but it will be a thing of gain, for it is better to depart and be with Christ. And so would you ground us in the grace of the gospel and relieve us of the fear of death? and replace it with hope of being in the presence of Christ forever. In Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen.